Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airways Podcast, the show where we comment on the latest happenings in the commercial aviation industry. I'm your host, Helwin Villamizar, digital editor at Airways, joined today by aviation analyst Rohan Anand and Vinay Baskar to kickstart the relaunch of the Airways Podcast. How are you both doing today? Hey, Helwin, doing good. Glad to be back on the Airways Podcast with you and Rohan. Hey. Good to be back as well. Thanks, everyone, for having us here. Excellent. So before we get started, uh, let me give a quick rundown of today's episode. We'll be commenting on United Airlines' operational meltdown. We'll also discuss uh, the DOT's denial of Delta's motion, asking for gateway flexibility for two of its five Tokyo Haneda routes. And we'll end with JetBlue's termination of the Northeast Alliance agreement with American Airlines. Then, for our feature interview, we sit down with our editor-in-chief, Roberto Leiro, who attended the 54th edition of the Paris Air Show to discuss the latest developments in the industry garnered from the event. While United Airlines suffered a major operational meltdown the last weekend of June, canceling more than 3,500 flights uh, during the week of June 24th, the cancellations were initially triggered by weekend storms, which impacted United operations in New York, before a combination of staffing challenges and additional weather issues at other United hubs like Chicago caused a cascade throughout the rest of United's network. United CEO Scott Kirby blamed the chaos on the FAA, pointing to issues with uh, understaffing and flight management. So what do you guys make of this? So I'm kind of with Scott Kirby here, right? I, I think this, there's definitely things that United has done wrong and continues to do wrong with how it's built its operation. Um, you could argue that it's been too optimistic with the schedule that it is trying to fly at Newark even adjusting for the um, reduction that it had, had already been asked for and had already given earlier this year, right? The FAA had already asked them to pull down some of their Newark flying, and they did that. But I think they were arguably still a little too optimistic. That being said, I think what you're looking at here really does boil down to the FAA, right? All of United's issues and United's planning made things worse, but the original sin here, right, is the FAA, the fact that staffing at New York ATC is still at 56% of target levels and of, of, of what pre-pandemic levels look like. Um, the fact that the flight management approach that the FAA takes at Newark um, is different and, um, and arguably worse than the approach that it takes at JFK and LaGuardia in the same metro area, right? So, you know, once they were dealt a bad hand by the FAA, I think United made this worse, obviously, with how crew staffing worked. You, you saw a couple of the unions mouthing off about that. But ultimately, I still think this was driven by a combination of the FAA and bad luck first, and then United's management underneath that. I could not agree more. In fact, I think in full disclosure, as many of our listeners know, I have had two stints working at two different U.S. airlines in my past. Uh, I've worked for two out of the big four. And so any of the information that I possess is not proprietary information before I continue. And I think 
for one, let's talk about the United factor. I believe that it has plans for each individual hub. All seven hubs have an individual strategy. And among that being for Newark, its primary international gateway, while it has added flights internationally from Chicago and from San Francisco and from uh, even Washington Dulles, I think that Newark remains the one where it can really go into some secondary and tertiary markets and also provide the transcontinental passenger uh, services from the New York hub, given that it lost uh, JFK slots. And so for those reasons, New York has really refined itself to become a specific type of operation. And to United's credit, they've done a really great job of doing that optimization work across all seven of their major U.S. hubs, and also while being able to adapt to different uh, nuances of the pandemic. As we've come to learn, as you know, broader terms have come about, the FAA situation has the uh, other impact of NAV Canada and how NAV Canada was definitely part of the mixture in which aircraft going westbound from Newark weren't able to use Canadian airspace or there were some other holdups there. there. There's some nuances to this. And I think that there are learnings that are coming out of all of these experiences to take it out a step further to like the Southwest meltdown back in December. So Vinay, you are absolutely correct in that regard. And, and that's been my response. I think the the melodrama around Scott Kirby taking a private flight, again, that's, you know, more of the melodrama part of this. And I know that that's going to be a subject. I do believe, however, that the involvement of Secretary Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg, the uh, conversation that's going on uh, and people talking about, you know, these FAA related things and these outages, especially up and down the East Coast that are taking place. Um, what are we going to do about all this? You know, what are we going to do about uh, you know, forest fires and smoke in the air and climate change and, and responding to these types of things that take place. Uh, our systems are outdated. Uh, and, and so there's not really a whole lot of movement that's happened over the last couple of decades as air travel is modernized in the U.S. Would you agree, disagree? Um, yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree that the U.S. government has not acted with a lot of foresight when it comes to thinking about the kinds of challenges that air traffic control, that the FAA would have to face down um, and planning ahead for them. Now, I don't think that that's limited to just the FAA. Um, the U.S. government has not had a great track record of planning ahead for pretty much anything um, over the last couple of decades. Now, I, I do want to maybe push back on one thing that you said, which is I, I know you like Mayor Pete um, and, you know, I like him for the most part, too. But when you asked, hey, what are we going to do uh, about you know, climate change and wildfires and all these challenges that the FAA is facing down. Well, if Mayor Pete's track record over the last couple of days is anything to go by, um, my guess is he's just going to pass the buck because that's really what it sounded like he was doing for, for most of the last couple of weeks. Um, when I think if you, so again, as, as we've both called out, if you sort of analyze what happened here, the FAA was really the, the choke point for, for a lot of this. ATC was really the choke point for a lot of this. So um, I know you like Mayor Pete, and I don't want to push back no. on, on you know, no. any political icon, but... but for, for sure. I actually think it was kind of cute. You know, I said that, like, two of my favorite nerds in the world that I know both personally, I personally know Mayor Pete, and I personally know Scott Kirby. They're kind of like, you know, hollering back at each other, and it's like, actually, these two people would be so much fun to go have dinner with like just the two of them 
And I'm pretty sure that the two of them would like have afters from there. And that would entail like both of them just like nerdy at, nerding out about like data and spreadsheets and, and stuff. Um, and that's a broader conversation too about infrastructure, right? It's it's not just airlines. It's not just air traffic. It's also all the stuff that we've been encountering. And it, this wasn't really a pro Pete Buttigieg sort of plug here. It was really more about like, this is the state of infrastructure in the United States. How are we going to sort of start to predict and use all these cool technologies and machine learning things that we have to be able to um, be better prepared so customers don't pay the price? And airlines shouldn't have to either. Our latest issue is now available at airwaysmag.com slash shop, where you'll also be able to get an Airways digital subscription, find Airways merchandise, and pre-order the 2024 Airways calendar. The other thing that you said that I thought was interesting was you, you pointed to the fact that United has deployed a specific strategy um, at all of its hubs for how for for the role that each of its hubs plays within its network. Um, and I thought it was really interesting as you think about what is likely to emerge from this in terms of cutting back on flights at Newark, going to a, you know, even sort of shorter schedule at Newark. What does that mean for, for Washington Dulles, right? Because if you think about the kinds of connecting flows uh, that get handled over Newark, Right. A lot of those, particularly that transatlantic, some of the connections into and out of the northeast, maybe even up and down the eastern seaboard. Those are the kinds of connections that, at least from a geographic perspective, Dulles is pretty well set up to handle. So do you think that United is going to double down on Dulles because yeah. of what it saw this week? Yeah, really good question. And again, I'll make the disclosure that uh, none of the information that I possess about United International Network Planning uh, is proprietary information. I uh, have not worked at an airline since 2019. So any data that I have and any analysis that I present is simply and purely based upon what I see today in front of me. And so for those reasons, I have also uh, a recommended episode of Cranky Flyer. Shout out to Brett Snyder, uh, who recently had an interview with Patrick Quayle, who is the VP of International and Domestic Network Planning and Alliances at United Airlines. And you can probably glean some good information from there, albeit the fact that this was before the meltdown that took place at, at Newark. So I think that Newark, for all intents and purposes, has a mixture of different fleet types amongst the 787s and the 777s. Uh, and of course, narrow body aircraft that can be used on transatlantic services. So it has the most kind of range to try as many things as it can. And a similar thing has been uh, possibly done with a lot of the Dulles operations, right? With beginning to uh, start routes to places like Accra and to Lagos, uh, among others. And even now, also add in markets like to South Africa, right? So United has already kind of been adding a lot of these trunk routes, well, not trunk routes, I would say, but routes that started from New York with heavier gauge planes. They've been able to add those from from Dulles. You know, that includes Berlin, and that includes also some of these smaller markets like Lisbon and Barcelona and Edinburgh, among others. So Dulles definitely has the ability to do that. I do believe that also that's a, you know, a Gates-related thing, and um, that's a resource-related thing too. So as United gets more 787s, They'll hopefully be able to do that. Um, but it's been nice to see since they're also doing kind of smaller movements out of Chicago here as well and to San Francisco. 
to a lesser yeah. extent. Well, to me, the interesting question is, you know, not even just those international dots where, to your point, they have a lot of duplicated routes that have lots of connecting flows. Think of something like a Brussels or an Amsterdam or wherever. But they are also, because of some of the unique O&D that, that Dulles has, they're able to add points like Amman Jordan, I think, is like the the, the canonical yeah. one, right? In terms of, hey, there's some unique demand from uh, Dulles, high-yielding demand in a way that Amman isn't necessarily to the rest of the U.S. Yeah. Um, so I think that part's really interesting. The bigger question for me with Dulles is, when does the domestic connectivity come back, right? Because if you right. look at, you know, July of 2019, right, the pre-pandemic sort of peak summer period versus July of this year, you know, Dulles is pretty similar in seats. They've, there's obviously been a ton of upgaging and a ton of additional international flying that they've thrown in, but it's down close to 50-ish daily departures. And, and this is a trend you're seeing across the the various U.S. airlines, right? You know, some I think Atlanta is down like 200 daily departures, but there's so many there that it doesn't quite matter or impact connectivity as much. But the, the question for me is, at what point do they add more domestic frequency out of Dulles? Because that's always what Dulles has struggled with, right? Because, um, you know, outside of some of the transcons, I think they're flying a seven, a 777 to, to San Diego, but outside of some of those transcons, right? Um, most of the domestic O&D demand that can feed a a flight with origin and destination passengers, that's at DCA, right? That's at, that's at Reagan. Yeah. Um, so the question really becomes, do they build up, you know, additional domestic connectivity that may truthfully not end up getting filled by, you know, Washington-based passengers or, or Washington destination passengers to feed some of this, to take some of that pressure off of Newark. I think that was sort of the plan before the pandemic. But it would yeah. be, be interesting to see just how much they lean on that and honestly, how quickly they can move to flip around their summer schedules, which are um, in, a, in a bit of flux. Right, right. And and also important to remember that in Dulles in, in particular, the DCA piece, as you mentioned, and also the Mal- the Baltimore piece, uh, you know, with Southwest being there and being pretty large there is big. Um, I also think that like some of these hubs across all systems at these major airlines, mainly United and Delta or United and American and American really in particular have been where have they moved capacity around like United has it moved more capacity back into Cleveland since the pandemic, which has allowed them to base some planes out there so that they can do more flying from Cleveland or from Denver for that matter, as they've been able to grow in Denver because they want to chase, you know, share in either of those places. Same with American. Uh, Americans definitely added a lot more capacity in places like Austin and Boston and Raleigh-Durham. So it, a lot of it could depend on that as well. Um, yet going from this topic, I think that we initially began with with United uh, and bringing that up a level towards just kind of like the state of the airline industry, I think that feeds kind of nicely into our next topic about the NEA <clears throat> and about the Northeast Corridor. And in terms of what the JetBlue... Uh, and American Airlines NEA uh, outcome has led to from what it started as in 2020 to what it's become today, which is really essentially not only is the marriage not approved, but one of those partners is actually bowing out of the engagement altogether and not appealing that. So uh, if we can proceed to that next topic. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, Despite its best efforts, JetBlue has terminated its Northeast Alliance Agreement with uh, American Airlines, along with its co-chair agreement, uh, mutual growth incentive agreement, the True Blue participating carrier agreement, and the bilateral special prorate agreement. 
Yeah, the the surprising movement, I believe, of American even partnering with JetBlue back in 2020 uh, caught me off guard. And it was because not that American had previously once had a partnership with JetBlue, but rather because American had announced a partnership with Alaska right before the pandemic that was pretty deep in nature. And I understand at the time why American would have wanted to do that for the Pacific Northwest and parts of the West Coast, even though the alliance between American and U.S. Airways was, you know, intended to, <clears throat> for all intents and purposes, provide American strength on the West Coast overall. Um, while also on the East Coast, American and U.S. Airways merging basically gave American hubs at Philadelphia and in Washington and obviously augmented uh, growth in the Northeast with its merger with the U.S. So now here it is, X amount of years later, saying that it needs JetBlue for more market access in the Northeast, like namely New York and Boston. That's when I started to scratch my head, and I was just like, look, it makes sense on paper. I don't know, and I don't see how they're going to get away with this. And also, I find it very just kind of telling about how American strategy is its route strategy outside of a couple of hubs is really kind of a head scratcher, uh, you know, compared to United that we just spoke about and not that I'm biased or anything. It's more just that they need all this help in certain corners of the, of the country. And, and this was designed to be part of that. Um, Vinayal, let me toss it over to you. How about your reactions? So, I mean, I think why they jumped into the NEA always seemed pretty clear to me, right? Um, I think New York and Boston both are a little different, but it was about this question of, hey, how do we maintain and grow a presence in NYC, right, which is the most important airline market in the country, um, one where American has had a lot of historical sort of heft and success. It was the airline's headquarters for a while, but also one where American has really fallen off in the 21st century. Um, and then Boston, which is a, which has bounced around in American's network, right, across the last, truthfully, like 30 years, right? Um, and they've been anywhere from like 70, 80 daily flights, basically a large outstation, to they've run mini hubs through Boston at various points with lots of sort of domestic spokes and some transatlantic service. So they've been all over the place in Boston, but they still have a really big frequent flyer base there as well. Um, and I, th I think they were losing that frequent flyer base to Delta. Um, and, and truthfully, the NEA to me was in, in part a, a, a question of the frequent flyer programs, right? It's how do we maintain our frequent flyer base? How do we maintain a advantage in New York City when we're up against the United BMF at um, Newark and the Delta sort of combined BMF across JFK and LaGuardia? Um, I think Boston is something very similar, right? How do we preserve you know, our position as sort of the first amongst equals amongst the legacy carriers when it comes to Boston-based business travel and frequent flyers. Um, and then truthfully, what they're doing in Austin is is very similar. Austin historically was obviously a Southwest kind of um, stronghold. But if you look at sort of the, the, the full service carrier component within Austin, that was a um, that was an American market, right? My dad worked at Dell between 2000 and 2008, and he was an American frequent flyer. He would take the shuttle up to DFW and then go connect to the world. So I, I, I think that at least was why they did it. 
Um, the question of whether they'd get away with it um, is, is probably a more interesting one. And I think on, on on that front, the world in which they launched the NEA was is very different um, than the world in which we find ourselves today, right? You have a DOJ um, and a presidential administration that is much more skeptical, right, of um, within industry collaboration and um, antitrust skeptical, some might say. Right. Now, I think in this particular case, um, they're kind of being morons. <laughs> okay. And, and and obviously that those are strong words. So what I mean by that is if you think about competition, right, they're thinking about competition in the most simplistic way possible. We need to have more carriers competing on routes. But if you think about the kinds of passengers that, that American, and truthfully these days, even JetBlue tends to serve, right? They're not really serving the bottom of the barrel, the ULCC, um, you know, passenger segment, right. right? They're really serving some combination of business travelers and premium leisure travelers, right? You know, arguably that mix is probably a little more skewed towards premium leisure travelers today than it was in 2019 um, with business travel not having recovered as much. But they're, they're really serving um, a more premium market segment. And within that segment, which of these two scenarios is better for competition in New York for those passengers, right? Is it better to have, you know, United and Delta, these two really strong sort of competitors, and then a couple of half competitors in the form of Americans sort of split semi-hub operations at LaGuardia and JFK, and then JetBlue having some strength at JFK, but not the international heft? Or are customers better off having a third global carrier competitor in the form of the combined American and JetBlue? Which would have entailed, what, 700 daily flights, more than 100 airports, 60 routes. Exactly. I mean, I, I, think, I, I think that's my point, right? Is that like, if you look at what the American JetBlue combination was, it was a true competitor to United at Newark and to Delta across the Guardian JFK. Right. What we're going to be left with after this is JetBlue and American both going back to their corners and both flying these suboptimal um, hub operations at LaGuardia and at JFK. And I think Boston's a little bit different. There, I don't necessarily think that you sort of saw as much of a case for, for where this is good for competition, right? In, in Boston, um, you know, I think there there's not the same level of restrictions, of slot restrictions, right? So in theory, American could build up its own Boston operation, though I don't know where they'd get the planes or crews to do that. Um, but, you know, Boston's a little different. But at least when it comes to New York, I think that the DOJ... Um, as it does in, in, in many of its antitrust cases, uh, at least in, in the current iteration of the DOJ, um, uh, is not thinking about this with a very sophisticated lens. Yeah, I agree. I agree to an extent. I think that the one thing that makes this all weird is spirit and the JetBlue combination with spirit, right? I think that's really where the whole thing kind of became very, I guess, ambiguous, right? Is that how are they going to be able to consume this other airline, which has a fundamentally different business model? You mentioned bottom of the barrel traffic. Well, you know, Spirit has presence all up and down the East Coast, right? And so for those reasons, a combined Northeast-Southeast combination with Spirit being in there, all of a sudden, not only do you have American you know, up there with Northeast and, and JetBlue in this Northeast Alliance. But then there could be fears that they want to double down, right, in the Southeast against Delta, against others. 
against itself. So I, I just think that there is this other big elephant in the room that threw this truly off. And that was what had changed from 2020 was that Spirit became the target of an acquisition or merger from Frontier and from JetBlue. And JetBlue had lost out Virgin America to Alaska in 2016 with that consolidation. And now these airlines have become so large uh, between, uh, you know, the big four, American, Delta United, Southwest, that an airline like JetBlue feels, you know, the squeeze to be able to try to compete with those ones and acquire the same number of aircraft. So it all kind of goes in this circle, I feel like. What I do find interesting were, again, I'm going to plug Brett Snyder, Cranky Analysis, like shout out to Brett, who did a really interesting uh, sort of uh, observation of the changes in market dynamics in New York JFK, in New York LaGuardia, with regards to the Northeast Alliance and how American and JetBlue made changes to their networks and some of their aircrafts that they used out of each airport, and wholly also while doing so in consideration of slots, and while also trying to build up international presence at New York uh, JFK International Airport. A lot of people are predicting that some of these new routes that came out of New York, like Delhi and Tel Aviv and Athens and Doha are at risk of being canceled because of that. Uh, I'm curious to know, are you in agreement with that? So I do think that plenty of the new routes are at risk. Now, I do think some of what you will see is a shuffling back to who is going to fly each of the NEA routes. Um, you know, or each of the domestic routes, but on, on some of the long haul international stuff that American has added out of JFK. Um, yeah, I absolutely think you could see some of those fall apart. Now, I think Doha is actually probably pretty safe just because it gets really, really good demand for beyond connections into South Asia, into the Middle East, even into Africa to some extent. So I think Doha actually feels pretty safe to me, but like Delhi, Athens, potentially, some of these routes that were dependent on connecting feed um, and probably perhaps just as importantly on JetBlue frequent flyers picking American within the New York market, I think that they're, they're kaput. And of course, you know, that's good for competition, right? Well, you know, the thing is, yeah, I see the irony in your, in your voice. The thing is, is that, okay, let's go by one right one. Um, Dola, I don't know really anything about. I've already, always thought that was kind of weird anyway with like, two daily Qatar Airways flights, but who knows? Then Delhi, that's a huge local market, right? So local markets out of JFK to places like Barcelona and Milan and to Madrid, where in Paris even, where JFK has a lot of additional competition on American, those have stuck around, right? Whether you can argue they're too important to cut or not, I don't know. So Delhi, I feel like also with the Indigo uh, co-chair, there could be some silver for that. Plus, it's the only flight that American offers to India. And so therefore, they have the ability also to connect people from domestic markets in the U.S. to help feed that flight in addition to all the local ones. Tel Aviv is interesting. People have been saying that because Delta and El Al have a new partnership, Americans are going to have a tougher time going up against those airlines into Tel Aviv. Uh, so not only that, United flies two daily flights out of Newark to Tel Aviv. So Americans already backed away from Tel Aviv twice now, one with not flying Dallas nonstop, 
and two with flying from Miami and then pulling that one. So who knows about that? And then Athens, the last one that's been added, has a lot of capacity. Uh, it has definitely been uh, added in uh, double increments, I think, at other airlines from the New York market. But who knows? Athens might be a strong COVID recovery market that has just a lot of demand. Other airlines have been extending their Athens flights, so that could be a positive indicator that Athens is a strong one. Uh, others like Rio de Janeiro, which I believe American added or at least extended, that one I would predict maybe is at risk. Uh, Buenos Aires is interesting because American has longstandingly been able to hold its ground in New York to Buenos Aires, but Delta, United, and even Aerolineas Argentinas have come and gone. And then you have New York to some Latin markets like Mexico City, I think, and to Monterrey, Cancun, Cabo, and they've pulled some of the other ones to Costa Rica. So really, you're starting to go around the world here and see all of these overlaps. I haven't even mentioned the A321s, right? The XLRs that should be able to enable not only JetBlue to add more European transatlantic markets, but even American for that matter. So there's so many considerations here that come into play where, of course, the uh, Department of Justice is just going to find scrutiny because really all they're trying to see here is like maybe even some sort of just collusion uh, at the end of the day. And that's what they're thinking of. So it's a very layered conversation. And I know that I might be sounding like I'm speaking in absolutes, but these are some of the considerations that come to my mind. Um, I think that it is absolutely a layered conversation. Um, but I also think that to some extent, the DOJ, at least as currently constructed under this administration, is ideologically opposed to um, what it views as antitrust violations. Um, I would probably disagree with that assessment, particularly in this case, but that's neither here nor there. I think that the question of the, the markets is more interesting, right? So I actually disagree on Delhi. Um, I don't think Delhi is a very premium market. It's obviously a big market from the New York City area with lots of visiting family and relatives traffic. Um, but there's not a lot of business traffic, right? Business travel has not really reemerged. And Delhi is more of a, um, you know, VFR market than it is a, a business market from the States anyway, to to, to large extent. Um, and it's a really, really long flight. So it ties up a 777 for you know, a, a lot of block hours when, you know, American needs that 777 in the rest of its network. That, I think the, the American's fleet is the really interesting question. You brought up the one XLR, and once those enter the fleet, I think you might see something different across the Atlantic. But American just fundamentally is short on wide bodies, right? If you compare the wide body fleets um, that American is bringing to the table, right, um, and you look at what they did with their, seven, th- their 767 fleet, um, with their uh, A330 slits, um, and even yeah, even the even the the seven five sevens, right? They've fundamentally retired a bunch of wide body capacity, and unlike Delta or United, they haven't really restored that with deliveries. Now, some some of that's on Boeing for for not um, speeding up deliveries of the um, for not speeding up deliveries of the seven eight seven. But if you look at it, they've got twenty two seven eight seven nines. They've got 37-7878s, which are the least useful of the 787s, truthfully. Right. Um, they've got the 47-777-200ERs and then 20-777-300ERs. Um, and they've got, a, uh, they've got another 30-7879s on order. But that combination, that's what? That's 59 um, plus 67, just, just, uh, just a tick over 
115-ish wide bodies, right? And no, and, and crucially, no transatlantic-capable 757s, which both United and Delta um, are carrying. And then if you compare that to where United is, despite the fact that United's fleet is smaller, United has 40 757-200s. A lot of those are transatlantic-capable. Plus, it's got 37 767s. Uh, 767 300 16 767-400s, 19 non-ER variants for, for domestic trunk routes, um, which given Americans' capacity strategy might be, that kind of wide, wide body might be useful, but set that aside. 55 777-200ERs, 22 777-300ERs, and then 81 787s, 12 eighths, 38 of the 9 and 21 of the 10. Plus, they've got the upcoming order for 100 plus 100, Right. Um, so, you know, if you look at it, United, that's 81, seven, seven, that's 96 triple sevens. And then that's 53, seven, six, sevens plus 40, you know, it's, it's close to 200 it's, it's, it's plus crazy. wide body aircraft. Yeah. And it's then crazy. Delta is somewhere in between, right? They did get rid of their, um, triple seven fleet during, yeah. during the yeah. pandemic, but they, they still retained a lot of their seven, six, sevens of which they're a huge operator, of course. Um, yeah. 45 of the of the 300, 21 of the 400. Um, and then they've got, obviously, their new fleets of trip, A330, 900s, and A350, 900s. No, so, I dare say that Americans' 777, 300s are also kind of useless to them. In fact, they're sadly only been used on a couple of experimental routes outside of London Heathrow. For the most part, they've been kind of a bust because it's allowed them to, yes, have more capacity in Heathrow. yes. You know, be able to carry cargo and also be able to, you know, help with the Delhi situation, for instance. But I mean, you don't see those being deployed on any strategic routes, really, other than maybe Sydney on occasion. I don't think that is entirely Americans' fault, though, because all of this at fleet. It started in 2013. Okay, it's what they debuted the new American livery, the current one, on, and so. that was basically one of the first precursors to the new American after merging with U.S. I don't really blame American for that, just because I think the mission that those 777s was in, were intended for was Asia, right? Like, that's why they brought the 777-300ER into their fleet. Yeah. Um, and both as a sort of feeder into Narita, but then also to open up new destinations like Seoul and and and. Beijing and Shanghai and um, and Hong Kong. And obviously, post-pandemic, the U.S.-Asia market has not recovered anywhere near the same as the rest of um, the international markets from the U.S. Uh, I did want to circle back to one additional route that you mentioned. Um, now, you called sort of JFK to Buenos Aires pretty safe. Um, and I think up until literally a month ago, yeah, has been safe. But I think you're, you and I are hinting at the same thing, which is that um, they just so American, like other U.S. airlines, just for context, for everyone listening, um, operates to uh, Aziza, which is the international airport for Buenos Aires, um, which is really far from the city. You also have Aerobarque, yep. uh, which is much closer into the city. So it's really the preferred airport for short haul travel. And uh, at but, West. yes. Um, and they recently expanded the runway at Aeroparque, which is going to allow Aerolíneas to operate its A330s from Aeroparque to Miami and to New York. Now, they can't operate them on some of the longer flights to Europe, 
But at least for those U.S. routes, which are the two most important U.S. routes, and third is probably Houston if you had to, if you had to do a stack ranking. But for those two U.S. routes, um, all of a sudden, some of that premium traffic that was picking American might just choose Aerolineas as much of a basket case as, as that airline has been at times over the past 20 years. They might choose Aerolineas because they've got the better airport at in, in Buenos Aires. Yeah, for sure. So which of the big four do you see in a better position this summer? Can I answer no one? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they all have meltdowns. I mean, maybe Alaska will be the least unless like something goes down in SFO. Hawaii, definitely. Hawaii is very, you know, pretty, pretty cool as a cucumber. Um, Operationally, financially, on the other hand, they're probably in the worst position of any of the full service carriers in the U.S. So, yeah, you know, a lot of them would have value. That, a lot of capacity has been added into Hawaii and Paris have gone down. Yeah, from Southwest and from others. So, yeah. Okay, so moving on, uh, the Department of Transportation has denied Delta's motion asking for gateway flexibility for two of its five Tokyo Haneda routes. The motion would have allowed other U.S. carriers similar flexibility. So while Delta has resumed service to Detroit, Minneapolis, and Atlanta, it was hoping for flexibility to shift is still to resume Portland and Honolulu routings. The Department of Transportation felt that Delta's request was unnecessary and would not benefit the public. It also said it also went against their process of selecting existing carriers over other competing applicants. Seems like the, the government is is everywhere, right? Either mergers or, you know, the NEA, JetBlue and Spirit, and now Delta. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's a big week for, or a big couple of weeks for, um, <clears throat> what's the right word here? The deregulated U.S. airline industry um, interacting yeah. <laughs> with the federal government in a variety of ways. What I think is important to remember is that Tokyo once played such a strategic role in global aviation when it came down to U.S. and really North American to Asia and broader Asia traffic flows. And that has changed a lot over the last 10 to 20 years alone. A lot of the airlines helped create a structure in Tokyo that, dating back to World War II, enabled U.S. passengers to transit seamlessly over it, particularly with Narita Airport, and allow it to be able to be this means by which you could get to East Asia, Southeast Asia, perhaps even to uh, other parts of the South Pacific, including also Australia for those who wanted to. There are just all sorts of functions that it provided. In many ways, it was kind of like a London Heathrow or Frankfurt or Paris. And as Tokyo continued to uh, evolve, not just as a local important market on its own, but also with the adaptations in aircraft that could overfly Tokyo. Um, Tokyo, meanwhile, had Haneda Airport that was able to extend a runway that was always the bitter, bigger airport and the more popular airport anyway. But it also was opened up to some of this international transit traffic. So you have these changing dynamics whereby not only are aircraft able to get from 
the North American cities over to places like Singapore and Hong Kong and Chinese cities, Taipei and Manila and so forth, and bypass them, uh, the lateral the, the bilateral restrictions between all these countries have changed and there's open skies agreements then you have joint venture agreements that come in and then you have delta and korean air all of a sudden become much more intertwined and so seoul has now also added this other layer of competition and siphoning traffic away from tokyo that is pretext for what delta has always wanted in tokyo because the connecting hub has shifted from what Tokyo used to be for Delta, that was inherited from Northwest, to Seoul. However, Delta still wants to be able to have some sort of access to maintaining its weight in Tokyo, having access to more slots and rights at Haneda Airport compared to American and United, given the fact that they both have JB partners with uh Japan Airlines and all Nepal, respectively. Delta has always just kind of gone after Tokyo in this very nuanced way that, quite truthfully, has sometimes not worked out favorably for them. But also, it's this is what happens with airlines in airport slots. This is a common case of, you know, a lot of politics, a lot of rhetoric, a lot of trying to do things because... You know, they think that they can, you know, get away with making the most noise or, you know, being the messiest. I, I'm not really sure. Um, there are suspicions that it's because, you know, Minneapolis to Tokyo is a weak route. I mean, that route has been around from the very beginning. It's like a very historic route from Northwest. And there is a reason for Minneapolis, I think, to have an on-stop flight to Tokyo. But there's also talk about the Portland flight. Well, again, that's another flight that historically has re- has has been around for a long time, dating back to Northwest Airlines dates, right? So what is the story here? What is happening? I mean, like, at some point, airlines have to say, okay, do I want to continue this historical route that is, like, you know, losing money? Or do I want to try to create this case where it's like, you know, there should be dormancy here for these slots, like... I don't really know. I, I don't know anybody in Delta's network planning department, and I don't know some of the backstories on the internal politics that has gone down. I just know that Delta likes to make a big scene about this Hanita situation, and it's always been the case. It's kind of fun. There's a lot of popcorn I consume when I watch it. Yeah. Well, no, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of what that changing nature of Tokyo's role in Delta's network has really been. Um, and, and one of the things that has been really interesting to me, I actually recently read um, the, the book by Seth Kaplan and Jay Shabbat, um, Delta, Glory, Lost and Found. It's a little older. It's from 2016. I was reading it, actually. I read it in 2016, and I reread it. I have both the hard copy, and I also have the uh, auto book. Shout out to Seth and Jay. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and I, I think I actually read it because of your recommendation, because I had never read it before. This was my first time reading through it. Um, I think it tells, tells a really interesting story, right? Like, first, the sort of change in the U.S.-Asia market was happening to Northwest even before the merger, right? They were losing money across the 2000s on having to funnel passengers into Tokyo and then funnel them out of Tokyo. Um, and of course, once the the market shifted and Haneda opened up, particularly once the daytime slots got approved in Haneda, um, you know, I think that the fundamental nature of that hub 
changed and it really became unviable. And I think the interesting question here, right, um, is not even just what is Delta, what was Delta looking for, um, but why have they found a much different path in Haneda than United and American to an extent? Um, but United really has, you know, restored all its Haneda service. It's restoring a lot of its Narita service. Obviously, it has the strongest Tokyo partner in Al Nippon. Um, American has a good Japan partner in uh, Japan Airlines, but it doesn't necessarily have the hubs that have J- Japan O&D to feed as many flights from its end. Um, but I think if you if you think about who Delta is as an airline, right, um, and and the kinds of passengers it's trying to attract, right, Delta has really gone on this journey of trying to position itself as the premium U.S. carrier, right? And so before the pandemic, that meant appealing to a lot of business travelers and some premium leisure travel. Now, I think it increasingly means positioning yourself to appeal to premium leisure travelers and, um, you know, whatever business travel remains. Um, we'll see how long they can continue to make SkyMile the worst frequent flyer program in the entire world um, and get away with that. But that's a sidebar and, and a topic for another time. But I think if you look at the routes that, that are, are losing out, Honolulu to Tokyo, um, that was always a route that was dependent on Japan origin traffic. And that traffic has not recovered to anywhere near the same degree as the U.S. traffic. Um, Portland was a route that worked because of a combination of tourism, Japan origin tourism to some extent, um, as well as business ties between the Portland community and Tokyo. Um, that's a, a, another route that has a lot of history, um, across Delta and Northwest. Um, there was a Delta Asia hub, Delta's first Asian gateway, in fact, was Portland back in the nineties. And now in Seattle, which is so interesting, which is, which is, is pretty funny. Um, and so. I, I think that the, the fundamental challenge, right, is that, is that they need the gateway flex. They, Delta needs the gateway flexibility more than United does um, and, and, and more than American does because American is going to fly its L.A. And, and DFW and not really care that much past that. Um, yeah. But I think the fundamental challenge and, and what this all boils down to is, is scarcity, right? Delta is desperate for the A350 and the A3900 that's using for these flights. Um, it needs those across the Atlantic, right? Yeah. It, it is, you know, it, it didn't do as bad of a job as American in sort of managing its wide body fleet, but it too is probably short of wide body capacity. Yeah. So I, I think there's a broader theme that you're seeing in the U.S. airline industry is, which is, and you see this across, you know, pilot shortages, um, but also across fleet shortages with all the supply chain problems. We're moving from an era of excess to an era of scarcity. And that's yeah. going to reshape route networks. It's going to reshape fleet mixes. Um, and it's going to reshape strategy to, yeah. to some extent. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think I think the history of, of Delta in Tokyo is, is, is a sad one. And that, that's not even getting into the um, the things that they've done to their Detroit hub. Yeah. Some of it international flying. Some of it. Um, <clears throat> what's the right word here? Stubbornly flying empty regional jets. Uh, at LaGuardia to slot on squats um, instead of, you know, rebuilding connectivity in their core domestic hubs. Yeah. But, but snark aside, um, you know, something like Detroit Nagoya is a route that has a ton of history, right? But that's also a business traffic route. That's about the fact that Detroit is the center of the U.S. automotive industry and Nagoya is the headquarters of, of Toyota. Right. That matters less in a post-pandemic world when business yeah, travels up. Historically, it's different now. Right. Right. I mean, it's crazy that at one point Manila had two daily 747-400s flying into it 
one from Narita and then one from Nagoya. And the one from Nagoya was actually a flight that I believe, you know, Detroit found that they filled all the front cabin with, you know, Nagoya bound passengers. And the back was basically the remaining visiting friends and relatives going from the U.S. to the Philippines and back. Um, plus, you know, with the scissor hub and, and Narita and even with, you know, some of that in, um, in other cases, you know, they could fill a lot of passengers going onward to places like Taipei, Manila, Jakarta, at one point to Beijing, to Shanghai, to Hong Kong, to Singapore, to Bangkok, uh, among others, and also the Pacific Islands like Palau and Saipan and Guam. And so that unraveling is interesting because, you know, in theory, we think that the fully like the 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 point of the Korean Airlines, uh, you know, joint venture was to allow none of this dual airport uh, kind of thing to exist, right? Because the split airport concept makes it really challenging for Delta to justify a flight from Minneapolis, you know, when those passengers can't fly onward from Haneda to Manila, for example. Like a lot of my former coworkers from Accenture and I, we would travel to Manila and the fastest one-stop connection from Minneapolis to Manila was through Tokyo. And when it changed to Haneda, that made it that made it tough, right? So what does that also mean for Korean Air with this upcoming merger with Asiana, right? Is Asiana going to bring in some wide-body aircraft into Korean Air, which then could allow them to maybe be able to do something creatively? Or is Sky Team, you know, going to evolve with Delta moving forward with El Al as a partner, which, hey, you know, they've got several Middle Eastern airlines like Saudi and Middle East Airlines. <laughs> Literally, the name is Middle East Airlines. How is that going to kind of reflect? And Delta has also said some very controversial things about Sky Team in the past, right? So... Alliances are always interesting because there's always drama. There's always these like extramarital affairs and like, you know, you know, the loyalties and the solidarities can be very, very nuanced in each individual case. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think Asiana is interesting just because it's really not that big anymore. Right. Um, but it does have a lot of wide bodies and, and that'll be useful for Korean Air as it looks to sort of rebuild its um, it's in Cheon hub. Um, I, I think that, you know, Delta's sort of theory of the world when it comes to alliances is really interesting. Um, to your point, I, I, LL, I'm skeptical of really doing too, too much for Delta beyond, you know, origin and destination traffic to Tel Aviv, just because um, I don't think anyone is going to ever voluntarily choose to connect through Tel Aviv. I don't even know if it, that's all that feasible in the first place. Um, but set that aside. I think Delta's theory of, of the world is that it wants joint business agreements, it wants equity stakes, right? It wants to participate in the profit, and th- that's who it views as its core partners. Mm-hmm. And then anyone else is sort of a second-class citizen in the alliance relationship, right? Delta and Vietnam Airlines, which recently added service to the U.S., yes, Vietnam is a Sky Team member, but I don't think Delta really cares, um, and I don't think Delta really does much with the Vietnam Airlines of the world or even the Saudias of the world, right? Um, beyond being one of the few reasonable value redemptions that's left in Sky Miles. Um, so I, I think Delta's sort of theory of the world is, is really, really interesting there. And, and fundamentally, you know, going back to, to, to Seth and, and Jay's book, um, I think that had they been able to get what they wanted with Japan Airlines, had they been able to woo Japan Airlines away from one world, yeah. I think this looks entirely different. You might not have had the Beyond Narita flying in that case either, but Delta's presence in Tokyo 
would have been much larger than it has ended up being. Um, now, American, I think, would still be just as small to Tokyo as it is today. Yeah, Americans uh, network is literally like morphing back into the same network that it was in 2011. It's it's wild to me. Now, like they literally have just become who they were before the U.S. Airlines merger. Um, just you know, domestically very differently, but well, plus or minus 600 and something daily flights at Charlotte. Yeah, right. Um. And yeah, just to kind of you know round up the circle on that, I think that the one thing that I've always found the most fascinating about how Delta has grown its weight around in Japan is that there's this concept of 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 how to do business in some of these markets, right? And just kind of like Guangxi is in China, right? You know how Delta has behaved with Haneda over the years has definitely raised a lot of eyebrows just kind of about the leadership approach at Delta, um, which Richard Anderson, for example, you know, just kind of was a lot more uh, hardcore about asking for what he wanted. Uh, and things changed when Ed Bastian became the CEO of Delta, because I do believe that Korean Air had some bitterness from when Delta wanted to go after uh, Japan Airlines. And Delta and Korean have had antitrust immunity since like 2002, and they had a very toxic partnership for a long time. Um, and there was all this drama that went down like 10 years ago. So it, it, it's very interesting how these things will always evolve in certain circumstances outside of our control, like COVID-19 and war, you know, will create, you know, new sort of interesting features to add to the mix when we talk about airline uh, route authorities. Okay, so I think we've covered uh, the present topics for these past few weeks. For a future interview, Vinay talks to Robert Toledo, our editor-in-chief, who attended the 54th edition of the Paris Air Show. What can we expect from the interview? Well, I think that the one thing that we can wrap into what we talked about as a potential topic for today were some of these orders for the Airbus A321, um, truly speaking, like the Airbus 320 family is the narrow body of the future, and also the volatility, the versatility, not volatility, the versatility of that aircraft along with the A220 has just kind of teamed up really nicely for Airbus uh, in terms of having this aircraft that can scale um, between two different ends of the spectrum in the narrow body market. And it's not quite the case with Boeing, given the fact that there is still a big gap between the 737 and the 787. Right. I have to add against that, I think that the A320 may or may not be the aircraft of the future, um, the A320 family, that is. But it is also the aircraft of 1989. Um, sure. So. sure. The other thing I want to dig into with Roberto um, is just to get the sense or, or, or just to see if his reaction to Paris matched mine, which is that it was a little bit of a dud, honestly, right? We got the Indigo order. Yeah, got a couple of other... Always way more hype than they're supposed to be. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, the airlines and the Qatari airlines have just kind of disrupted the whole thing by having their own gaudy air shows. Right. So Paris and Farnborough are like not as like what they once were. Right. No, but I, I think we had some reasonable reporting that said that, you know, there was a potential Delta follow on wide body order that would have been really interesting to see and tie into some of the things that we talked about today. Um, right. I think that you had a lot of reporting about a Turkish order, which they wouldn't announce at, you know, Dubai. 
So that would have been 600-ish planes. And even if they didn't do all of it at the air show, um, I think that what 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 was big for me was not just the sort of, um, you know, the lack of those bigger orders. It was really the lack of those like missing middle orders, right? right. So you got a couple of small orders, some small ATR orders, some small EJET orders. You had the couple of blockbusters with Indigo and the Air India firming of its previously announced orders. Fine. Right. You didn't really have those like 20, 30, 40 aircraft deals that are, are really the lifeblood of of air sh- of you know, Farnborough and Paris in, in past years. So I, I do think that even adjusting for you know post-pandemic normal, adjusting for the fact that air shows are always overhyped, I still thought it was kind of a dud. I thought it was it was a, a, a paper tiger to some extent. So I'm curious to see how Roberto felt when he was on the ground. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, guys. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank we- you. Yeah, uh, and we'll be right back with our interview with Robert Toledo. So I'm joined now by Roberto Lero, uh, the editor-in-chief of Airways, who was actually on the ground at the Paris Air Show, the 2023 Paris Air Show, back in June. And Roberto and I are going to have a chat about some of his reactions and observations from Paris and what the outcome of the Paris Air Show says about where we are in terms of the post-pandemic recovery and in aerospace in 2023. So Roberto, thank you for for joining me and and sharing your experiences. Thanks to you, Vinny. It's a pleasure to be with you, sharing with everyone here and the first uh, Airways podcast in a while. Uh, it's good to see you and Rohan back in in full swing here and looking forward to talk to you and sharing uh, with our listeners what is the current situation, current state of affairs in the industry uh, after the Paris Air Show. When we go to these air shows, you can get a good snapshot of what's going on and uh, where the industry is heading into in the next year. And Paris was not an exception. Awesome, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would say that from the outside looking in, because I was not on the ground in Paris, mm-hmm. it definitely seemed like this was the first true post-pandemic air show in terms of energy and excitement. Obviously, Farnborough and Paris canceled in 2020 and 2021. And Farnborough last year, 2022, was pretty muted. So what was the experience like on the ground in Paris this year? Well, the, there is a lot of optimism in the industry. Obviously, the consensus is that the worst of the pandemic for airlines is over. Uh, travel is back, and is back with a vengeance. And you can see that the numbers on the air traffic are recovering pretty quickly. As the, the latest data from IATA is showing that we have already reached 2019 levels, pre-pandemic levels, which is good. On the other hand, for OEMs, the scenario is not that clear. You have several uncertainties around, first of all, uh, geopolitical uncertainties. Um, You have supply chain constraints. The, The pilot shortage is also a factor that is also driving a lot of caution around in the industry. And despite the the profits that the, the industry is having, their trouble, the airlines are having, 
the net profit margins are still uh, too thin at 1.2%, I think it is. So um, in the long term, uh, I think airlines are being more cautious uh, in when planning their fleets. And this is reflected under their books. We, we saw in Farnborough last year, just 369 orders. And in Paris, despite the orders from Indigo and Air India, which were massive, obviously, a word that drive the, the, the stellar ones from the show. Uh, in total, they, it was 1,278 aircraft orders, which is good. But uh, again, if you subtract the Air India and Indigo orders, the result is more or less the same as we had in Farnborough uh, last year, around 300, 400 orders. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably fair to subtract the Air India order for sure, because that was a just a, a firming of an order that was announced back in February. Right. Indigo order, obviously, it, it, the news of it broke before the air show, but mm-hmm. it was something that happened in this time frame. So maybe that one's a little less fair to to strip out of the uh, the order totals. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think your, your, your point about recovery is really interesting just because um, I think, yes, we're back to maybe the 2019 traffic level right? Overall, in terms of just total butts and seats, right? But the composition of that traffic is is very different. If you look at certain markets, they're probably above pre above the 2019 level in terms of USA to, to Latin America. Domestic US traffic is, is more or less back. Transatlantic has actually grown arguably since 2019. Mm-hmm. But then other markets, Trans-Pacific, really any long haul touching Asia is still down, particularly China, though that's starting to reverse a little bit. Um, and I think in terms of the composition of that traffic, right? It's a lot more leisure. And and yes, you do have some premium leisure that does help with yields and, and filling the front of the cabin, but business travel is still probably no more than 40 or 50% recover, recovered on a global basis. So um, I'm sure I'm sure that's playing a role in, in how the airlines are thinking about the environment as well when they think about orders. Correct. That's also an important factor to take into consideration too. Yeah. And if you think about the U.S. carriers, right, that's arguably the market that's been the most recovered. Um, you know, United placed there a bunch of big wide body orders towards the end of last year. Mm-hmm. Delta, you know, some people maybe expected them or certainly do expect them in the coming months to put a, out a follow on wide body order. But for the most part, the U.S. carriers are kind of already have these big order books. So there's not really much room for growth orders. Mm-hmm. Chinese carriers are obviously in a very different environment and circumstance. Um, so, and obviously Emirates and, and Qatar Airways and Etihad already have these big order books. It almost makes you ask the question, where are the big orders going to come from moving forward? India is obviously one big source, maybe Turkish airlines, but there's not a lot of carriers left that can place these sort of headline grabbing 150 narrow body or, or 50 plus wide body orders, right? If you think about it that way. Yeah. About the Turkish order, it's quite interesting. Um, it was previously announced in the um, IATA uh, annual general meeting in Istanbul. And yes, it's for 600 aircraft. It will take place in the next um, two months, approximately around August. We should uh, hear back from them uh, the order for 600 airplanes. Now, um, talking about what are what is left in the in the market right now, well, we have Riyadh Air, which is a new uh, airline from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. They made a big announcement on white bodies earlier this year. And maybe that order will spur certain 
adjustment uh, in the order books for um, Emirates, maybe, or uh, Etihad or Qatar eventually. But if they make the announcement for, for aircraft orders, it will be in, in Dubai, which will take place in, in November. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, part of what has happened over the last 10 years, this is not a new trend, and it was something that was happening pre-pandemic, right, is that the centrality of Paris and Farnborough, the alternating European air shows, to when big orders get announced, started to get it distributed a little, bit, a little bit more, whether it was across Dubai, of course, for the Middle Eastern carriers, whether it was across Singapore or, or China for some of the Asian carriers, um, you definitely see a more distributed announcement flow. Now, obviously, Boeing and Airbus try to do their best wherever possible to pull orders into at least an announcement, even if it's not a firm order, but an, even an announcement of an MOU for Paris and for, for Farnborough. Right. But some of the airlines aren't complying just because of, to your point, how much aircraft orders, big aircraft orders certainly are intertwined with the geopolitics these mm-hmm. days. That's right. Interestingly, um, and something about aircraft orders here, one of the things um, generally, let's just say that both um, OEMs like Airbus, Boeing, and Briar ATR used to bring everything they had and show off of like their cards in the game during Farborough or Paris, and now it's more distributed. But something interesting occurred this year in, in Paris. Approximately 97% of the orders were third, and this is a record. And this is also telling you a lot of what's going on and how airlines are trying to secure the production slots. They're seeing now production slots as also a, a, a very covetable asset. And you, if you see, for example, in the uh, JetBlue Spirit Merge and how those production slots for A320s uh, played a pivotal role in the deal as well. So airlines are taking more seriously also the production slots. And, and making it firm and trying to confirm and reaffirm and hold those production slots because they know or they project that the demand is there, the demand will keep growing and they will need aircraft. But um, at the same time, placing a big bet on placing uh, firm orders with deliveries to five, seven years, despite the uncertainties, the current uncertainties. And it's quite, it was quite interesting to see Actually, the Air Indigo order is all firm. The 500 aircraft are all firm. 125 Airbus A320neos and 375 Airbus A321 with the option of adding the XLRs to the uh, tally as well. Indigo Air India firming up their previously ordered Airbus and Boeing planes um, they actually kind of dominated the headlines. And I thought the Indigo order was really interesting because, you know, the headlines, the Airbus press release, everyone touts the fact that they've got 1,300, you know, total firm orders um, within the A320 family. And yes, that's true in a sense, right? They're literally going to pay cash for those five, you know, thir- you know, 500 new orders plus an existing huge order book. But the flip side of that is the way Indigo runs its operating model and, and how it, it cycles aircraft in and out of its fleet. It doesn't operate these planes for 15 years or 20 years or you know, 40 years if you're Delta with its DC-9s that it inherited from Northwest Airlines, right? It's going to operate these planes for six, seven, eight years. Um, in the interim period, it's going to 
um, do a sale lease back, which is going to immediately return a lot of the cash that it's put out against the production slot and the initial delivery. So Indigo's model is never going to have 9,000 or 900 A320 Neo family aircraft all at once in the in the, in the fleet. It's going to have 500, 600, sure. But a lot of these aircraft are going to be turning over. You know, In fact, some of their earliest A320 Neo deliveries, Indigo has started to cycle out of its fleet and onto the global market. Um, so I think the order was obviously a, is a big order. It's it's sales and cash and production slots and all of that. But it doesn't necessarily mean what it th- what I think a lot of people are taking it to mean about what Indigo's true growth ambitions are. Now, wants to be a big airline. I don't think it necessarily wants to be as big as the the top line order book is is saying. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, it was the groundbreaking order. It was the biggest order of the show. Uh, the fact that it's all a firm. Uh, Order tells you a lot where the aviation in India is heading to an exponential growth. This is largely attributed to a growing middle class in India. This is pouring travel in the region like no other region in the world. Similar growth we observed in China in the last decade and uh, now the same uh, in India. This exponential growth is poured by the um, middle class. Also, um, the consensus that is in the government of investing in new uh, new facilities, new airports, also also helping airlines to plan better on, on their future and, and what's ahead for uh, in the country for the next decade as well. And considering that these aircraft uh, are set to be delivered in seven years, or uh, starting deliveries, or the Indigo order will start deliveries in seven years makes a lot of sense what you're saying about the cycle they have, the, the short, relatively short when compared to other airlines that extend the operational life of their aircraft. In the case of Indigo, maybe by the time they start taking deliveries of this new 500 aircraft, they're already facing out uh, part of the plane they had in service. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think the interesting question with India is really going to be infrastructure. And by infrastructure, I mean, of course... Um, you know, the airport capacity itself, obviously, some of the major airports in the country like Mumbai, um, the second biggest market in India, even Kolkata and, and Chennai, to some extent, have capacity constraints just at the airport level, at the terminal level. Then there's the question of ATC, right? India is not a country the same size as China or, or the US when it comes to geography, right? Um, you know, if you're trying to fly... 900 narrow bodies, which is the order book across Indigo and Air India, not to mention, you know, Akasa Air and some of the startup and smaller carriers. Mm-hmm. There's just not a lot of space for those planes, right? Uh, just on some fundamental level, the longest sort of heavily trafficked route in India is something like Delhi to Chennai, maybe three, three and a half hours, right? Or, or Delhi to Kerala. And most of the routings are one and a half hours, two hours, um, whatever you look at. And so I think the interesting question is going to be the infrastructure piece as well as how the international market develops. And India has a very restrictive set of air service agreements. Um, you look around the, the, the world, you could probably double the air service agreement to Dubai tomorrow, for example. And both the Indian carriers and Emirates and Fly Dubai, everyone would add that capacity like this. That's just how much unserved demand there is. And so the question for me is going to be, how does the ATC infrastructure, how does the terminal infrastructure at, at some of those key airports catch up? And how does the international bilateral agreement liberalization process 
keep pace because that's what's going to be necessary for um, both the Indigo Order, but especially the Air India Order, right? Which includes a lot of wide bodies. You know, how do you make? How do they get enough traffic rights to be able to fill all those planes? Some of it's obviously fleet, repra- fleet replacement, but some of it is going to need to be new growth. Mm-hmm. Most, uh, I think, in the, in the case of Air India, uh, it will be for new growth and an international expansion as well. And when you see this growth in India and this growth in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia as well with the uh, Riyadh Air, uh, the the presence of uh, Riyadh Air, and I think even this year we got an order in the show from Flynas as well for A three twenty Nias as well. You see uh, that there is a lot of pressure, and it will be interesting also how the Emirates will react to this. So they will keep on growing towards where they will uh, this growth will go, and. But I agree with you. Um, in the case of India, there is uh, there are formidable challenges ahead. And but I think they still have the time and the the will and the the vision to make it work. And yeah, it's a formidable challenge that uh, lies ahead, and we'll see in the next years how it will evolve. Sure. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, rapid economic growth multiplied by. 1.3 billion people and counting is a heck of a tailwind for aviation. And um, that ends up papering over a lot of infrastructure challenges just by sheer demand. Um, so I think it will definitely be interesting to observe. One of the other things that I thought was pretty interesting about Paris, changing gears a little bit from the airline side, is the lessors, right? Um, if you look at past air shows, I was thinking about the question of why Paris 2023 felt like a bit of a letdown to me. And I think the big thing that I actually saw as I reflected on it was that some of the big lessor orders or even those like sort of mid-sized lesser orders, right, from from leasing companies was were missing, right? You didn't have Air Lease Corporation and Stephen Edward Hesse, who's been, you know, a basically default presence at air shows in the past, right? You didn't have a lot of um, you know, folks like Aircap, whomever, you didn't have a lot of those lessors placing the orders for 20 or 30, you know, wide bodies or, or 50 plus narrow bodies. And I think that was actually one of the really interesting takeaways was the degree to which the order activity has shifted onto the airline balance sheets from that of the leasing companies. Well, I want to say there was a bit of a letdown. There is um, Generally, when I like to to describe the show or, or the attitude, it's a cautiously optimistic approach. I mean, they're they are optimistic, yes, uh, but they know uh, that there are several different factors uh, currently ongoing. There are well, we have obviously geopolitical factors, we have supply chain constraints, we have pilot shortage, we have uh, volatile fuel prices, and this is all affecting. Um, the environment, which is just recovering from a pandemic. So I think there is a lot of caution when particularly from lessors were in planning their future portfolios. And yeah, this year, uh, generally lessors are a driving force in the shows with they, they place, they tend to place the largest orders. At, at least it was what happened in Paris uh in 2017 and 2019, and Farnborough the years before as well. But this year, only we had Avalon, um, which was the uh, the leading, uh, literally the only one that placed uh, orders in Paris, and it was for 
20 A330 NEOs and 4737 MAX. And besides that, they sign a leaseback, uh, a buy and leaseback order with Porter Airlines for 10 E2 Embraer E2 jets. In the case of ALC, I agree that Verhesse generally is one of the stars of the show, pretty much as um, Aquarel Backer in, in Qatar Airways. It's also a very prominent uh, um, star uh, in the in the show. This year, ALC only secured uh, two uh, orders for the 787, nothing else. So you can see uh, maybe the, they're being more cautious uh, against the future. The lessors are maybe they are more exposed to risks. Uh, than airlines in certain aspects and they're trying they're being more careful um, this year when planning their their future fleet plans yeah well I mean I think you know you're definitely seeing some of the instability really impact lessors for sure um, obviously the go first bankruptcy in India was very intertwined with what was going on um, with with leasing companies so uh, you know definitely caution makes sense I just thought it was interesting the degree to which the leasing company recovery has not necessarily matched up with the airline's level of optimism. The interview will continue, but before that, let's get to this episode's trivia. Okay, Vinay, I think uh, you have one? Yeah, so it's my turn to do to pick the trivia question so i'm going to pose this question to rohan and to hellwing and then they will give you all their best guess and we'll reveal the answer um, during the next episode so today's trivia question is there have been 19 civil variants of the boeing 747 across passenger freighter and combi variants which airline has taken new delivery of the highest number of unique 747 variants and how many were they? And so for some bonus points, name the variants and the number of aircraft delivered across each variant. So which airline has taken new delivery of the highest number of unique 747 variants? Helling, any guesses? Uh, I'm thinking Lufthansa, right? I mean, that's the first that comes to my mind. Uh, that are British Airways. Okay, so we got Lufthansa and British Airways. A specific question, but a cool one. Lufthansa and British Airways. It also could be Pan Am or TWA, but I don't know the orders off the top of my head. I think the issue with Pan Am and TWA, I'll tell you that neither of those is the answer. And the reason is that they died before they could get into the various variants of the 747-400 and, of course, the 747-8. Yeah. Um, So it's not Pan Am or TWA. Your other two guesses were really good ones, but we're not going to reveal the answer now. Uh, instead, for all of those, all of you listening in the audience, let us know your answer in the comments, um, whether you're reading on Substack or airwaysmag.com, and we'll actually reveal the correct answer on our next episode. And I believe like Japan or Korean or Cathay or freaking. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, you, you don't get to guess 15 <laughs> different airlines. The, the purpose of the question is you got to pick one airline. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. British Airways, you're going to stick with British Airways. You're long Yeah, I just give an alternative. Look, actually, Lufthansa is a better guess. But I'll, uh, I'll stick yeah, with Lufthansa. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was about to guess first, so he he took he took Lufthansa off the board, and we're doing again smarter guess. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. And then one final request from all of us here at the Airways Podcast: If you have enjoyed this refresh and relaunch of the Airways Podcast, please leave us a rating and a review, five stars, obviously, on Substack or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you are listening to this podcast. It's going to really help us grow and continue to spread the podcast to more folks um, and really give us the flexibility to um, invest in some of the cool stuff that we have coming down the pike. Yes, yes. We have a lot of great plans coming. Um, thank you, guys. Thank you, Rohan and Danae. See you. are happy to be back. It's been a minute, and we didn't want to leave you all cold, but sometimes you just got to, you know, take a step away. So please let us know how we can continue to be the Airways podcast you once loved and hated and continue to love and hate even more because there's always room for improvement here. I'm going to be getting a knock Indeed. on my door from the government at some point next week. So um, ho- hopefully it's more other folks who, who loved and hated it. But yeah, we're, we're just really happy to be back. Yeah, I'm glad uh, to hear you guys again. And I'm sure our listeners are, are too. So thank you. Thank you very much. That's a wrap for today's episode. Thanks for listening. As always, we'd like to thank our sponsors for supporting the show. If you're interested in sponsoring our podcast too, please visit airwaysmag.com slash podcast for more information. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on airwaysmagazine.substack.com or your preferred platform to receive new episodes every two weeks. If you're a Plus member, stick around for the rest of our interview with Roberto Toledo. For everyone else, we'll catch you on the next episode of the Airways Podcast. So one final question before we you know, wrap things up here and, and put a bow on the Paris Air Show with some of our winners and losers. If you read the headlines, it did feel like a quiet air show for Embraer and ATR and some of the other smaller manufacturers. What's your sense of how they're feeling about the markets and post-pandemic recovery as compared to Airbus and Boeing, who of course have you know a ton of supply chain challenges, but have also scored a lot of really big orders, you know, starting towards the early part of 2022? Well, I think uh, obviously ATR...